Welcome back to the Energy Today podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jackson Roos, and let's get into it. So awfully interesting over the past week looking at markets, just kind of a broad highlight real quick. So we've really seen a lot of choppiness across across the broad economy as well as the stock market over the past week. Um, We've seen some commodities advancing while others are in retreat. The big story was lumber was increasing by I don't even know how many percentage points (laughs) over the past year. And then all of a sudden, that's reverse course. What we're seeing now is a lot of bottlenecks and trade flows across the world really stemming from the pandemic that have led to shortages of certain items or commodities. Uh, the most prevalent and most talked about one is semiconductors, which has truly led to a whole host of other issues. I mean, you think about how many things that semiconductors go into. Um, from cars to computers and electronics, really things that make our life possible. So seeing those shortages kind of come through and watching that pass through the economy has caused quite a bit of problems as well as concerns regarding inflation. Um, really, this has been echoed and reflected from business leaders across the world, the U.S., as well as officials in Washington, really concerns around these bottlenecks and inflation coming through because whenever we have a lot of money sloshing around the economy, people are beginning to spend money uh, and we're seeing shortages of of items. People are taking more vacations and traveling and airfare and all of those things. Um, It's just been really interesting to see and, and to see how that will play out going forward. So on top of this, you also have investors seeking more risk within the economy. And I actually read an article this morning on on the Wall Street Journal, which I'll put in the show notes, is that the spread between the 10-year yield, uh, which is issued by the Treasury, and riskier corporate debt, so riskier bonds, bonds that are deemed more likely to... um, expire without or or to to go bankrupt in effect Uh, that spread has narrowed to almost record lows meaning that investors are willing to take more and more risk more and more risk and try and generate more yield so just points to this time in our world and our economy where risk is is being more accumulated across the market. So it's just interesting to see how that playing out. And while the stock market over the past week has been fairly quiet, there are some of these factors that are really weighing on investors' minds. Uh, a few of these I've already mentioned, such as the shortages of items like semiconductors, like how lumber used to be, um, as well as concerns about overall prices, the consumer price index, uh, which had, uh, which was pretty high last month, as well as other inflation gauges. Additionally, the broad story seems to be slower vaccinations across developing countries. Um, This sort of developing story within the U.S. of now that the bulk of adults that have wanted to get a vaccine have, there's concerns that some people will not be getting a vaccine and how that will impact cases across the U.S. and then further reopenings, really getting to how our economy begins to kind of bounce back from this whole pandemic. And then additionally, um, the Delta variant 
slowing down reopenings across the globe. Especially as over the past week, we saw LA reinstitute more mask mandates inside, which sort of is a reversal from what I have expected things to continue to be continue to be unraveling from there. So <clears throat> where things have been interesting, interesting though, and the purpose of the podcast is the oil market. So in this episode, I will cover what has been going on across the oil market here in the U.S. as well as internationally, specifically looking over into the Middle East uh, as well as Russia. Uh, I'll be looking at prices, price indicators, drivers of those indicators, as well as the latest OPEC drama, which I've talked about quite a bit, uh, but it's really driving what's going on in the broader global oil industry, as well as our really interesting article of the day, which I'm actually pretty excited to get into, uh, is Mexico's cartels are beginning to steal Uh, Well, not beginning to, but they're ramping up the stealing of oil and oil products from pipelines in Mexico. So I'm going to get into all of the uh, implications of that a little bit later on in this episode. So to quickly recap what has been going on in OPEC. So OPEC is a group of uh, a bunch of countries over in the Middle East. uh, And OPEC Plus includes Russia as well as some other countries. And really their goal is to set policy as they account for the majority of the world's oil production. They set this policy in order to try and influence oil prices. And generally, a lot of these countries, a lot of their revenue, um, as they have nationalized oil companies, is generated from oil. So whenever oil price is low, that's not good for them because they can't balance their budgets, all of those things. Um, So less than two weeks ago, as I talked about on the show, OPEC had a meeting, and in this meeting they discussed increasing production by 2 million barrels per day for the months between August and December, and they planned to do this and increase about 400,000 barrels per day per month across the group. But what happened was is that with this agreement, they weren't going to adjust the baseline production of of, of the countries, so everyone would kind of increase marginally. Um, but it wouldn't increase specific countries' baseline production. So incomes, the UAE or the United Arab Emirates, I'll refer to it as UAE for the remainder of the show. So the UAE wanted an adjustment on their baseline, meaning that they wanted to increase their own production sort of in relation to the other countries within OPEC. And presumably the UAE wanted to do this for obvious reasons. I mean, to make more money for their economy. And like I mentioned, most of these countries, and especially the UAE, generates most of the revenue for to balance their budgets, to, to fund their government, all of those things from their nationalized oil company, which the UAE has. Uh, additionally, there's been a big trend of investing this money generated from oil sales into diversified activities across their economy to really get ready for a uh, you know energy transition greener economy whenever that date may come. So it's been seriously interesting as the Saudi and the UAE are generally thought of as close partners or geographically in the same region they've got along for the most part for a while now uh, and this points towards some wavering of loyalties or uh, cohesiveness among 
OPEC and what this agreement, this, this disagreement did bring about uh, across the oil market over the past week or so was that it spiked prices initially to around $75 per barrel. And this was interesting to me because I would have assumed the disagreement would have led to a weighing on prices and a decrease in prices is not actually a spiking in prices. And I've done this before where I've expected something out of OPEC, uh, seen something different, and then also expected a different outcome and then seen something different. Um, so what this did signal to the market is that we're not, we may or may not see more production over the next few months, which now we are in a demand-driven market meaning that with demand driving prices and supply staying subdued prices should continue to rise so this also brought about fear across the market and presumably within other OPEC countries not within the Saudi Arabia Arabia, UAE disagreement that we might see another oil price war in which one country such as Saudi Arabia will open up the floodgates of their production, try and crash oil prices to drive the other person out, uh, other country out of the market and then slowly lower production to this new and improved price range. So that was the big fear. That was the really big fear that there'd be more fractures among the group that would happen. And then things would again, be negative for everyone, all all oil companies all across the world, and it was really in no one's best interest to do that. So while that was that was a fear, it's really more of sort of on that on that uh, tail end of that of that bell cur- bell curve there. So Iraq also got on the bandwagon and also asked for a higher baseline production. So incomes. This morning, actually, Sunday, July 18th at 11.30 in the morning. (laughs) Um, So OPEC had a meeting today, OPEC Plus, which includes those Middle Eastern countries as well as Russia and some others. So they agreed to new baseline adjustments starting in May of 2022, so next year. Uh, So this group agreed to these baseline production quota changes uh, for the countries of UAE, Saudi Arabia, Russia, Kuwait, and Iraq. So these countries will see a boost in production, which is really what the UAE and later Iraq wanted. I'm assuming these other countries uh, were behind closed doors, such as Russia and Kuwait, kind of just tagged along onto this new agreement. And so these countries will be able to boost production, generate more money. And this is really stymied that worst case scenario and this disagree- this disagreement between the UAE and Saudi Arabia. So at the last meeting, whenever there was disagreement, there was discussion of increasing production by 2 million barrels per day through the end of 2021, which would have been 400,000 barrels per day um, increase per month. So that's staying the same. It's just the production quotas of each country of those countries that I listed the UAE Saudi Arabia Russia Kuwait and Iraq will be changing in May of 2022 so they're going to stay around the similar similar production you know barrels per day range right now um, this agreement did extend this overall production agreement pact through 2022 so getting down to the brass tacks of this there's really two significant pieces of information here. One of them is that we have peace, we have cohesiveness surrounding this 
disagreement that's really rocked and been driving a lot of oil price concern and action over the past week. And this also means that there's that worst case scenario is not going to happen. But in my opinion, this has set the stage for late 2022 rolling into 2023 of possible future OPEC drama. Because my question is, well, what happens whenever the supply and demand aspects have stabilized the pandemic is hopefully far behind us at this point and now these other countries are like well hey why am i sitting here lowering my production to satisfy other members other countries uh in the opec group so will we see see future fractions within opec what if there's a spinning off of a certain uh, sect of countries um a lot of questions that could really influence not only oil prices, but just where the industry is heading. So something really interesting. I'm not a, uh, I'm not, I can't see into the future, but whenever things return to normal, so to speak, in the oil market and the supply and demand equation is balanced again, I could, I could see some fractions kind of developing there. So, Moving on into a couple of indicators um, in the show, we always cover rig counts, the frac spread, as well as inventories. So rig counts over the past week have increased by five to a total of 484, up 231 from a year ago. Remember about a year ago, oil prices and, and the market in general was kind of the bottom, <laughs> the bottom fell out of it and they, fo- they fell from a 30-story building there. So the year ago projection isn't as necessary or isn't as important. But one thing to keep in mind is that this does reflect sort of restraint on behalf of upstream oil and gas producers. So those companies that are going out into the Permian, uh, into the Bakken, you know, all the into the Eagle Ford exploring for oil and gas and producing it, it does reflect that Restraint because at other at this price point in other times in in history, especially during the boom bust shale days, uh, we, we should have seen rig counts skyrocket at this point as producers can make more money and more acreage becomes more economic. But that's really the opposite of what we're seeing, and I personally couldn't be happier about it because. The energy sector is now the best performing sector in the S&P 500 for the first half of 2021. And Wall Street is really taking note. We've seen a remarkable turnaround from 2020 whenever, in, you know, people banned, buy, almost, you know, didn't actually ban buying energy stocks, but basically didn't want anything to do with energy companies during that time. But now, I mean, what, what a turnaround from that time frame. And I think that time frame accelerated a lot of things in normal life here in the u.s and abroad but what it did is it really woke up oil and gas companies and got them on a better footing to get ready for this new age that we're living in living in where we have one aspect of energy transition then we also have this reality that we have a lot of demand for oil and gas products here in the u.s as well as as well as globally so shifting gears again to look at the frac spread count by a company called Primary Vision. So what the frac spread count does is that it indicates the number of crews, number of fracking crews completing previously drilled wells. So it reflects the number of wells expected 
at some point in the near future to come onto production. So this has risen by four to 238. So sort of fitting within that similar story of rig counts increasing by five. Well, we've seen frat crews also increase by four. So this indicates going forward, probably a slower or a continuous increase in recount. I don't think it's going to jump exponentially, um, but your guess is probably as good as mine because who knows what's going to happen in the future. So lastly, before we get into the article of the day, looking at inventory. So U.S. commercial crude inventories decreased by around 8 million barrels from the prior week, um, sitting around 8% below the five-year average. So I think every time that I've talked about this this gauge over the past almost month, it's continued to go down and down and down. Now we're sitting around 8% below the five-year average. So as we see demand continue to rise, I think there's a certain ceiling to where demand of fuels and gasoline and aviation jet fuel can only go up by so much. Uh, I expect this inventory is to sort of probably increase over the next few weeks. Um, as we sort of see this shakeout period where now things are just kind of returning more to a stable and uh, in, in, uh, more commonplace uh, inventories and demand equation. So now shifting gears once more into the article of the day. So I, I absolutely found this so interesting. So the title of this article from oilprice.com is titled, quote, Mexico's drug cartels are stealing oil again. So this article, while this has been going on for a while now, comes right on the heels of that Pemex's pipeline burst in the Gulf of Mexico, which, unless you've been living under a rock, you've seen that viral IFR video uh, that I actually discussed a little while ago. Uh, but anyways, getting into this really interesting article, it just makes me think of I mean, like Mexico uh, cartels stealing oil, it just isn't really, never really ever crossed my mind. So I'm going to read you this quote. It's kind of long, but it really encapsulates um, the gist of this article. So the quote goes, the systemic theft of crude oil and derivative products, most notably the theft of gasoline, has long plagued Mexico's hydrocarbon sector with it estimated that organized crime groups crime groups are earning up to $400 million annually from the theft of petroleum and refined products. The scale of the problem was highlighted by Mexico's national oil company, Pemex, estimating in early 2018 that oil theft was costing it more than $1.6 billion annually. Petroleum theft, including refined products in the violence-driven Latin American country, typically is performed using illegal pipeline taps, end quote. So, a lot to unpack there, um, even adding on top of that, that the oil industry in Mexico contributes around 2% to the GDP as well as 6% of oil revenue exports. So these cartels are tapping. I think of El Chapo. I mean, I know he's in prison, but think of like those kinds of cartels tapping into Pemex's massive pipeline network across Mexico, And again, remember that Pemex is Mexico's nationalized oil company. So they don't have a ConocoPhillips and ExxonMobil as Mexico's premier national oil company. They just have Pemex, which is their national oil company. So these cartels are siphoning off oil, which again, in Pemex, estimated that it was losing 74,000 
barrels of crude every day, uh, which works out to around three and a half million dollars in lost revenue every day. I don't know about you, but I would not be happy about losing three and a half million dollars every day. And so much so, and along the similar lines with the Mexican military and the newly elected back in 2018, the president of Mexico had to step in to, to try and ward off and, and arrest and, and and stymie this whole uh, stealing operation. And it almost reminds me of of the Netflix show Narcos, but with oil and gas as the contraband instead of illegal drugs. So I can just, just, it's so interesting. I mean, stealing, like tapping into pipelines and siphoning off oil and gas to ultimately sell on presumably the, the black market. And kind of coming on top of that, of how hard hit some Latin American countries have been from the pandemic, Mexico's GDP did contract around 8% during the pandemic. And even with unemployment rising, it sort of lends itself to illegal activity kind of rising in lockstep with it because if somebody can't find a job that they can earn a decent living on and with, with organized crime and cartels running rampant in Mexico and not probably all the other Latin American countries, it's only likely that these things are going, that these pipeline tappings are only going to continue. And so much so that according to this article, in the first two months of 2021, there were 794 seizures of oil and oil products. Uh, that's quite a bit, only in the first two months of 2021. And now even the cartels are using underground tunnels to traffic these stolen fuels. Similar to the underground tunnel that El Chapo used to escape that prison back in whenever, whatever year that was. But this really isn't the first time that stolen oil has been an issue. I've been reading a book lately called The Prize. Uh, it really details the oil and gas industry over the past 100, 150 years. And back in the 1930s in East Texas, whenever there was a great big oil strike, uh, there came to be so much production and the U.S. government stepped in to try and ration off some of this, to try and slow down either production or to institute rations or, or quotas almost, similar to what OPEC has been doing. And there was a term called hot oil uh, or that originated around that time, which means that these bootleggers uh, of oil and oil products were stealing uh, oil or producing more than production quotas and then selling that on a similar black market. So awfully interesting. Uh, it's just, I don't even know how you stymie that except sending in the military or police or increasing seizures, those kinds of things. But it certainly can't help Mexico's economy. It certainly can't help Pemex. Um, thankfully, uh, that's this sort of equation is not happening in the U.S. because that would be a very big issue here in the States. But that is all that I have for you on today's episode. I will drop those links in the show notes. I'd love for you to check them out. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you have a great and safe week and I'll see you next week.